Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Happy New Year and welcome to Genealogy Gems Podcast episode number 175. Our holidays here at the Cook household were fairly quiet this year. I have to say that I kind of really enjoyed it that way. We didn't manage to get everybody in the house at one time until the Saturday after Christmas. So that's kind of when we officially celebrated Christmas and got the kids and the grandkids all together. And of course, it's a blast with little kids around. Um, our grandson, Davey, he's five now, if you can believe that. And little Joey, his little brother, is two. And, of course, everything was over-the-top excitement with them. So they were having a blast. Joey was running around canting Santa Clauses in the house and that kind of thing. The highlight of the evening was I went outside to get this wagon that we got them for Christmas. So Bill had put it all together. And it's um, it's one of those really big green John Deere wagons. And it has the, the wood rail type sides around it. So I went outside and I, I'm bringing it in the house and reeling it in. And if you remember the movie, uh, it was the John Hughes movie, Home Alone. And remember the little boy, Kevin, his his kind of trademark was slapping the sides of his face and his mouth was just gaping wide open. That was little Joey. When he caught, when he caught a glimpse of that wagon coming through that door, holy smokes, it was priceless. It was so cute. He just, his hands went up to his face. Oh, he just couldn't believe it. And, and of course he immediately climbed right in. So um, it was, it was awesome. I'll have a picture of him in the show notes if you want to see Joey and his big wagon. But we had a wonderful time. I hope you had a wonderful holiday as well. And I'm pretty excited, like Joey was, uh, about this episode because it is just jam packed with all kinds of fun stuff that we're going to do today. First, Genealogy Gems contributing editor, Sonny Morton, is going to be here to announce our new book club read for the first quarter of 2015. And it's going to be a good one. The, the nationally acclaimed author who wrote this book will be joining us on a future podcast episode uh, to give us some of the backstory on it. So Sonny will be here to announce that. And then since it's January, that means that a lot of television shows are also kind of ramping back up. And one of those is the Genealogy Road Show, if you've seen that on PBS. And not only is it going to be back with some new episodes, it's going to feature a new addition to the panel of hosts. Uh, they have Kenyatta Berry and Joshua Dia Taylor, who are the hosts, but professional genealogist Mary Tedesco is joining Genealogy Roadshow, and she will be joining me here a little bit later in this episode to talk about her experience on the show and also talk about her specialty, which is Italian research, which I couldn't be happier about because we really haven't had a chance to delve into Italian genealogy until now. So we have the right person, and she will be here shortly. And our own Genealogy Gems DNA guide will be here, Diane Southerd. And at the end of the show, I'm going to have a very special announcement to tell you about that I'm very enthusiastic about. So that is coming. 
we have tons to do. So let's uh, jump right over to the mailbox, hear from you guys, and then we will announce our new book for the Genealogy Gems Book Club. From my old hometown One with some jokes From my old pal Jim Brown Bring me a letter From that girl of mine Saying that she's longing for me All the time Bring me a letter From my proud old dad that we are winning, and I bet he's glad, but more than any other, a line from my old mother. Bring me a letter from my hometown. Well, back in December, I posted uh, an article on the Genealogy Gems blog. It was called Mary Cemetery Displays Dirty Little Secrets of the Dead. Uh, I hope you had a chance to take a look at that. It was really an interesting story. Um, a gravestone creator, he's in a small town in Romania, took his mission very seriously to memorialize the dead. And he did it in kind of living color. Uh, with plenty of color images and even he even included dirty little secrets and gossip that he carved onto these tombstones about the local residents um, at this Mary Cemetery. This was reported in the New York Daily News and the woodcarver responsible for over a thousand gravestones in the Mary Cemetery as it's known would wander through town. He would be taking notes on people's quirks and their secrets some flaws like drinking and carousing among them and memorialize them colorfully on their tombstones when the time came. And on other tombstones, you can see his sad laments for the untimely passing of a child or the death of an adult uh, by a sad accident. Uh, there was a quote in the article that says, there's no point in hiding secrets in this small town in Maramirs. I think that's how you say it in Romania. So people's lives are captured honestly in their epitaphs. The woodcarver was, uh, his name was Stan Ion Petros, and he lived there from 1908 to 1977. And he put these tombstones together. And conscious, of course, of the legacy that he was leaving, and perhaps anxious to kind of tell his own story rather than have somebody else do it, as he had been doing for people, Petros carved his own tombstone before he passed away. And he trained his replacement who continues to add to the brightly colored crosses. And you gotta see these pictures in the blog post because they really are something. They're, it's just such a um, glorious color. Amazing. You've never seen a cemetery like this before. So I'll have a link to this article in the show notes so that you can check out the pictures and also that original New York Times article about the cemetery. So we asked all of you uh, who read that article to head over to Facebook and tell us about some of your memorable epitaphs that you found, some of the, the kind of crazy things that you run across on 
Cemetery Tombstones, and several of you did. So let's see here on Facebook. Um, Cindy posted, one of the most fascinating epitaphs I've ever seen is in Monticello, Florida. It reads, remember reader as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you shall be, prepare for death and come with me. Ooh, <laughs> talk about speaking from the grave. Uh, she says the, the date of the death was in the 1800s and the tombstone is made of metal instead of stone. Kind of different. And Jan also uh, posted and says most memorable epitaph to date that she's found. Uh, in memory of Elizabeth Palmer, who should have been the wife of Simeon Palmer, who died August 1776. And that's in the old common cemetery in Rhode Island. I love that. <laughs> he got on the last word on that, right? And speaking of untimely deaths, uh, in December, I shared with you uh, about an article that I had found about my husband's great-grandmother, Mary Ann Munns, cook, and her untimely death. And Jillian wrote in, she says, what an amazing, heartbreaking, yet somewhat uplifting story. And Jillian, that's kind of how I felt about it too. So I, I understand what you're saying. She says, I feel compelled to share a similar struggle on my family tree. She says, it is a bit long, so I'll have a link in the show notes so you can check out uh, her blog, burgessgenealogy.wordpress.com, and you can read the whole article. But she says, the shorthand version involves my great-great-grandmother being widowed by the Spanish influenza and her children being taken from her by a corrupt politician who uses his connections to incarcerate her in an insane asylum to gain control of her late husband's property and mineral rights. Yikes. She survived it miraculously and went on to live a happy life, even getting to see her great-grandchildren being born. My grandmother told me that her father was forever changed by what his mother endured, and he was the most forgiving man she'd ever met. It reaffirms your statement that bad things may happen, but you don't have to let it determine your outlook or your path. Much love to you and your family for overcoming and living out a legacy that recognizes the struggle and the acts involved in overcoming. And uh, I appreciate that. I I think that it was amazing in our case how the story just kind of got kind of buried with her, if you will. I mean, we just never heard a thing about it. And yet, uh, I I love that Raymond didn't let his mother's uh, suicide kind of change the course of history forever. I mean, certainly, I'm sure it changed him. But he kind of took the reins and decided how he was going to respond. So I appreciate that. That's an amazing story, Jillian, that you're sharing from your family. So I appreciate you writing in. All right. Well, I have lots of other emails here, but I have so many things to share with you today. So I'm going to hold on to these. Uh, I always love when you guys write. So do keep in touch. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com. I don't always get a chance to share all of them or reply personally. I try and I do read them all. So keep them coming. All right. Well, coming up next is the book club and we are going to keep it coming with our brand new book for 2015. And I'll bet 
It's a brand new year, and it's a brand new book for the Genealogy Gems Book Club, and I'm really just absolutely ecstatic that you have all embraced the book club the way you have. We've just had a ton of fun on the Facebook page. We've had the author of uh, She Left Me the Gun, Emma Brox, who joined us there on Facebook. And of course, we've had our own book guru, Sunny Morton, guiding the way. And I want to welcome Sunny back to talk about what we're going to do here for the first quarter of 2015. Hi, Sunny. Hi, Lisa. This has been very exciting. I have to say, I am a book-loving nerd at heart, and it is really fun to hear from other book lovers, too. So our last featured book, She Left Me the Gun, was a memoir by a woman raised in England who researched her South African past. So this time, we like to mix things up a little. This time, we're going to fly across the pond to the new world, to a best-selling U.S. novel, Orphan Train by Christina Baker Klein. Orphan Train is one of my favorite books. I've read it twice and I've recommended it more times than I can count. And you know, this is a book that I have heard about so many times and I haven't read it. So I am going to be the first person lined up to get a copy and and read the book. I've just heard amazing things. So tell us kind of about how you came to pick it and what you think. Sure. Well, first, let me say I thought a lot about whether a genealogy book club, you know, which is based on researching real history, should use novels in it. Yeah. But, you know, we are three-dimensional people. We're not all <laughs> fact and no fun, right? Right. I've loved historical fiction from the time I was a kid, and I'm guessing that I'm not the only one in the family history audience who loves historical fiction. So my first love in historical fiction was called A Proud Taste for Scarlet and Miniver by E.L. Konigsberg. And if you're looking for historical fiction for like a fifth to eighth grader to read, that's perfect. It's a kid's chapter book about the life of Eleanor of Aquitaine. It's told from her point of view as she and the cast of characters from her life are sitting on a cloud in heaven, waiting for her husband, King Henry II, to get to heaven. So the reason I mention that is that that children's novel bred in me this love for reimagined history in which the stories, the true stories and lessons from past lives are repackaged in a way that's meaningful to us, in a way we're willing to listen to. I think to me, that's the value of historical fiction. So on to Orphan Train. I'm guessing that many of you have already read and loved it. If you have, raise your hands for us on the Genealogy Gems Facebook page and tell us so. If not, here's a little bit of an intro for you. Orphan Train follows the story of a woman who became known as Vivian. She was an Irish immigrant girl uh, with a totally different name who entirely lost her family and then was forced to ride the orphan train. So the orphan train, um, Lisa, are you familiar with the orphan trains? Because some people are and to others they're new. Well, I've heard about them particularly in Canada when I was up in Canada um, doing some speaking engagements and there were several people 
who had ancestors who were on the orphan train, but you know, that didn't uh, right into my family tree. So I don't know that much about it. Tell us. I will. And yes, I've heard about the Canadian orphan train riders too. So this was an early, very special urban brand of foster care, at least in the U.S. It was based out of New York City. I'm not sure where the roots of it were in Canada. But um, the idea was that homeless or neglected street children were gathered up and put on trains out to the country. They advertised yeah. ahead of time uh, the organization, and these were charitable organizations that, d- that ran this. They advertised ahead of time that they would be stopping at these little rural railroad depots where essentially each of the children was lined up and local residents could come and pick the ones they wanted to take home. Essentially, the <laughs> children amazing. were advertised as free labor sources for farm families. It's hard to imagine in this day and age that something like that happened. And I mean, I'm sure for some, a positive outcome came, and I'm sure for others, it did not. So um, I can imagine... We get a sense of that mixed bag of results here with Orphan Train. So Vivian yeah. rides the Orphan Train, and we follow her life through childhood, through some really challenging placements with a few families, but then into her young adulthood when she is still trying to sort of create an identity for herself. And then the book sort of jumps ahead in time to when she is a 91-year-old woman, and she meets Molly, a teenager in today's foster care system, oh. which adds a whole new dimension to it. It makes it very personal, I think, to people living today, very relevant. Molly comes to Vivian's house uh, to help her clean out her attic because this teenage girl has gotten herself in trouble and she needs some community service hours. So Molly thinks this old lady, Vivian, could have absolutely nothing in common with her, not knowing anything about Vivian's own trials as an orphan writer in the early foster system. Wow. I mean, that, that right there, that kind of bridges that gap between, uh, like I said, you know, trying to imagine that happening today. And yet we do have our own versions of it. And um, oh, my gosh, it sounds riveting already. So what makes this a really good read for genealogists? How did this come onto your radar for the book club? Good question. To me, the core of the story is really about family identity which is what we all look for when we're doing our genealogy. You know, both these girls were separated from their families at a young age, and they were essentially told their past wasn't good enough and that they were sort of rebooting their lives from scratch. And they were starting their story over right then, often with new names, new parents, new families, new stories. And, you know, you can't do that to a person without serious consequences to their psyches. Right, right. So this book reminds me, as I read it and read it again, how important it is that each of us has a storyline from the past that existed before we were born and brought us to who we are today. And that it's perilous to break that story up or to be ignorant of it. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's the crux of what makes this so compelling for someone who loves family history. The author spent a lot of time with the real stories of people who have lived in foster care or who rode the orphan trains so that the book would be, you know, sort of an authentic representation of the feelings, even though it's not wholly factual, wholly based on one particular person's life or two particular people's lives. So the orphan train history itself is so fascinating. And this, I think, is a great way to be introduced to that chapter in history. So the book is Orphan Train. 
by Christina Baker Klein. You can find a link to purchase it in the show notes for this episode. And next month, I will be back on the show with a few more suggestions for fun things you can read if you've already finished that and a teaser from Orphan Train. And then in March, we will welcome Christina Baker Klein to the Genealogy Gems podcast for an interview, exclusive interview for genealogy audiences. I am so excited. Did you all hear that? Christina Baker Klein is going to be here on the show and we're absolutely ecstatic. I know that you, you know, called me after your interview and we're just like raving about the conversation and I'm just really excited to be able to bring her to all the people that I know are already out there who've read the book. And those of you who have not yet, you'll be along with me reading and catching up, but then to really hear her take on it. Because I'm with you, Sunny, I could see how there are times where there are just too many stories, too much background that to focus on only one single ancestor's story and, and always have to have it be a nonfiction book may not fully capture the overarching concepts that kind of need to be conveyed. And I could see how a novel could really do that, could, you know, give her the ability to, to bring the intimate details from the stories that she collected but then weave them into some some bigger statements about this experience these people had. Well, there are a lot of novelists who have said that fiction is truer than nonfiction. And in the sense that it can capture the spirit of something because it can really focus on the essential elements without yes. having to pay attention to a lot of mundane things. Or, you know, there's a lot of parts of people's lives that aren't really a crucial part of the story. And if you can sort of carve out and create a story that emphasizes and really amplifies the essential yes. parts of the story that's that's what the this particular piece of fiction do, is doing you know Emily Dickinson said tell the truth but tell it slant and yeah. maybe that's <laughs> unfair to sort of um, take that quote into this context but that's oh that's something that a fiction writer does is f- tell the the truth a larger sort of creative or emotional truth in a fictional form right well here we go. We're going to launch January 2015 with Orphan Train by Christina Baker Klein. And if you want to pick up a copy, uh, we love that you guys have all been using the links on the Genealogy Gems website. Um, so head to genealogygems.com and click book club and you'll find the book listed there. We'll have a link for you. When you use our links, you're helping to support the free podcast. You still have all the flexibility to buy it as an ebook or get a print copy or buy used copies through Amazon. But when you start with our link, no matter how you end up picking up a copy of it, you're helping to support the free show and making this book club possible, which we really appreciate. And uh, I just think it's been fabulous. I hope that all of you listening will also head over to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash genealogy gems. Let us know. Have you read the book? And if you haven't, what are you looking forward to? What have you heard about it? Uh, let's start the conversation and we'll certainly be having a lot more as this quarter uh, continues on. And of course, Sunny, you'll be back next month on the Genealogy Gems podcast. You've got some additional books, particularly for those maybe who've already read Orphan or have already sped through it a second time and some books to kind of keep them uh, busy and interested in, in genealogy. Well, thank you so much. We're going to look forward to it and we will talk to you next month.
You know, I always advise people to keep their master family trees at home on their own computers, not online. The family tree software I recommend is Roots Magic, and I'm pleased to announce that Roots Magic 7 is out and it's better than ever. Now, what do I love most about this new update? It's got to be the automatic hinting feature. It's like Google Alerts for genealogy websites. RootsMagic now automatically searches sites like FamilySearch and MyHeritage for possible matches to your tree. You're going to see light bulb hints appear whenever a match is found. Clicking the light bulb will open a web browser with matching records. They've got new accounts that let you easily publish and maintain multiple trees online, whether publicly or privately. And data management is easy with the new data clean feature that helps you quickly find and fix possible problems with names and places. Or use the file compare feature to look at two different trees side by side and transfer information between them. These are just some of the dozens of new enhancements. You can give it a try right away with no risk with the free edition called Roots Magic 7 Essentials. So what are you waiting for? Go to rootsmagic.com. You'll see pretty quickly why professionals and beginners alike choose Roots Magic. Our sponsor for this episode is MyHeritage. Now, I know that you tune in to the Genealogy Gems podcast because you know that I'm going to carefully vet the products that come across my desk. And I'm only going to bring to this show the ones that I really think are the real gems. Well, MyHeritage.com is in that category, and I couldn't be happier that they've signed on to support and sponsor this free podcast. I've spent the last several months really digging into MyHeritage, and I found some powerful tools that I think you really need in your genealogy tool belt. First of all, they have over 70 million members worldwide. If you're serious about making connections in the country where your ancestors once lived, hands down, MyHeritage is the place that you want to be. Get your tree posted on their website and start to see the magic as they automatically match it up with other trees, not just with genealogists in the country where you live, but genealogists around the world. Then there's MyHeritage's unique and powerful search system. It's called Record Matches. It constantly calls 5 billion historical records for your family. It's the only family history interface out there using semantic analysis to search newspaper articles, books, and other free text documents. It's also the first to translate names between languages. And I personally like that the matches from the historical newspaper collection at MyHeritage, they show up towards the top of the results list. So visit MyHeritage.com. It's free to get started, so there's really no reason to wait. And there are billions of reasons to try it out. Visit MyHeritage.com.
series Genealogy Roadshow is entering its second season on PBS, and there's a new addition this time around as Mary Tedesco joins the team. The series is filmed in different cities around the country, much like the Antiques Roadshow, and they help Americans solve genealogical mysteries. Well, Mary Tedesco is also the founder of Origins Italy at originsitaly.com, and that's a firm specializing in Italian and Italian-American genealogical and family history research. She speaks fluent Italian. She travels there quite often and conducts genealogical research and visits her own family. And Mary Tedesco is here to chat about the Genealogy Roadshow and Italian research. It's a twofer. Welcome to the show, Mary. Lisa, thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here. I absolutely love your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, I feel like I'm a busy lady, but you're a busy lady. (laughs) Filming season two. Where have you guys been traveling to this time around? Well, this season on Genealogy Roadshow, we filmed in Philadelphia, New Orleans, and St. Louis. So it's just three fantastic American cities that I think that our viewers are just going to love and love the stories. Oh, Fabulous. Now, I know in the past, uh, first season, which debuted in 2013, it was uh, Kenyatta Berry and Josh Taylor, and who've been on here on the show. Um, how did you come to join Genealogy Roadshow? Well, um, Josh and Kenyatta actually recommended me when the producers said that they were looking for a third person. And obviously, when I met the team and I got a chance to speak to everybody, it was really a no-brainer to join the cast, to join that team, because everybody in the team is so wonderful to work with. And Josh and Kenyatta are just fantastic. And, you know, I love them very much. So Mm -hmm. it was just kind of a no-brainer for me to come on the show. It's really a sincere pleasure to be on the show. And one of the coolest things that I do, quite quite frankly. Well, now you've come in second season. How was it kind of being the new kid on the block? (laughs) Do you get involved with the research itself? Or are you more in the host mode of uh, bringing the results of the the background researchers to the audience? Well, actually, we do a bit of both of those things, the three of us, but I really couldn't have transitioned so smoothly without the help and advice of Josh and Kenyatta and the whole production team, because they've been so wonderful in giving me very constructive feedback on how to get better and really how to present this on TV, that is the stories to our guests in a very positive and meaningful way. Um, You know, I couldn't have done it with, you know, great backing and support from the production team, everyone at PBS, They've just been absolutely phenomenal. That's awesome. You know, I know in talking to um, the folks who do Who Do You Think You Are and some of the other shows where there's a lot of research behind the scenes, the challenge with television, of course, is how fast paced it is. And you only have this finite amount of time to try to convey the story and the research behind it. How is that for you as a genealogist? Is it a little frustrating to not be able to go into all the details? Well, the fast-paced environment that we connect the research under is so cool, and it's just a constant adrenaline rush, and frankly, I really, really love it. Um, We utilize the best local experts that we can find, and when on-site research is required, we tap other professional genealogists to assist our research team with that. So there's an incredible amount of thought and care that goes into researching each and every story for each guest on Genealogy Roadshow. It's a very special thing to me, and I know I share from the whole research team that we just love doing it. It's a sincere pleasure. Well, and as I mentioned, you know, it's a condensed 
offering on the on the screen, what we're going to be able to see. How much time do you get to spend with the person that you're sharing the story? And then how much time in comparison might we see in the final edit? Well, uh, depending on the story, and we're talking about, you know, table stories or the longer stories, we would film anywhere from maybe about 45 minutes or an hour, depending on the, the actual story itself. And then it gets edited down uh, at the producer's discretion, of course, to anywhere between five minutes, eight minutes. You know, it really depends on the story and what's there. So obviously there's a lot going on and a lot of information being conveyed that is absolutely condensed for a TV audience. So that's something really important to keep in mind as a viewer. It's just there's so much more that goes into it. And then we do present select things um, for the television audience to put on TV, which is just a really cool process. Right, just kind of some of those highlights to uh, to to show what's possible, and I think that's really what the show does. Is it kind of um, it gives people a real look at what's possible, particularly those who aren't into family history research. Exactly. Um, do you find that? Do you are you finding people who are saying, "Gosh, I didn't think I was going to." do that, but now I'm kind of interested. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Genealogy Roadshow, one of the things I really love about it is it proves that everyone has a place in history and you don't have to be famous to be remarkable because Lisa, I'm sure you'll agree that each of us have really incredible stories in our family history, some of which we may not even know about yet, which is really where Genealogy Roadshow comes in. And that's, I think, also what sets it apart. You're not dealing with celebrities. Correct. Tell us a little bit about how these folks who are participating are selected and how you how do you decide which story you're going to pursue? Absolutely. So to find the participants for the series, uh, the producers sought out a diverse mix of stories from Philadelphia, New Orleans, and St. Louis. They really found people that wanted to learn more about their families, their family histories, and ultimately themselves. Right. So they've got the mystery at hand. Did you find that some of these people have already done some of this research themselves? Or are these pretty much novices in terms of genealogy? Actually, Lisa, there's a mix of both. There are a mix of folks that are somewhat more experienced genealogists and then other people that haven't done too much research at all. So Genealogy Roadshow has really embraced the best of those two categories of people, which is really exciting. Uh, it's so cool, for example, to um, have a guest that's really interested in genealogy, and they've done research for 20 years, and then to reveal to them that document that they may have been looking for for 20 years. And then just on the other end, to be able to uh, present something to somebody that may know next to nothing about their family history, it's just equally exciting and awesome for them. You know, when you're uncovering stories for people, um, obviously, we all have skeletons in the closet. But it was interesting, I was thinking, you know, one person's skeleton is also another person's skeleton. And that may not be the person who sits there in front of you at the table, who maybe hasn't decided that they're all that comfortable with that. Um, How do you cope with sharing that information? Because it's relevant to your guest. But also with the sense that in the back of the mind, there could be viewers out there who are actually related who either may or may not be comfortable or may or may not agree with what you find. Well, on Genealogy Roadshow, obviously, I guess if there is a sensitive subject or perhaps a difficult subject, we approach it um, with the most respect that we possibly can because we are sensitive that some facts or some details 
may or may not be received well by the guest, but we present everything, every single story with the utmost amount of respect, uh, both for each guest, for our viewers, and everyone involved. I mean, that's really how I personally approach it. And I know that Josh and Kenyatta also do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I know there's the website, there's a companion website that uh, goes along with it. Will people find additional items? Do we get some of those outtakes and some of the extended footage or what's going to be available to us on the website? Well, I know that the producers and the PBS team have some great things in store for us. We will be adding content to the website leading up to the actual broadcast. So I would encourage viewers to check out genealogyroadshow.org and check for updates because we have some great stuff coming. And I know that there will certainly be clips and various previews leading up to the premiere, which is on January 13th on PBS. Check your local listings. Exactly. Now, you did three episodes. Uh, do you Have you heard yet? Are there going to be more in the works, a new season, or maybe a longer season? Well, Lisa, we actually did three cities, but it will turn into about six episodes. So we did. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so there's even a, a little bit more of that. So that's what we know at this time. And, um, you know, really, we can't speak to future seasons or so forth. At this point, um, we, we just don't know. But obviously, being an optimist, I, I hope for many wonderful things for Genealogy Roadshow in the future. I think it's a fantastic project and a great show. Exactly. Now, finally, I'm sure people are listening. They're thinking, oh, I'd love to do that. How do they get to find out about where, uh, what cities you might be going to in the future and how maybe they could participate? Well, I would definitely encourage everybody if they have a family story or a curiosity or they may be related to a famous person, just any type of interesting thing, I would encourage you to go to grcasting.com and submit your story. Oh, perfect. Okay. We'll have a link to that in our show notes for this episode. Now, Let's switch gears a little bit to Italian research, um, because I know that that is your specialty. And um, it's really not a research area that we've tackled yet and really devoted time to here on Genealogy Gems. And so this is a perfect opportunity. Um, when, when someone is ready to tackle their Italian ancestor, maybe they've known that there's that branch of the tree, they just haven't known where to start. And obviously, the goal is often to get back to the old country. What do you recommend are the first steps that uh, someone needs to take in order to pursue Italian roots? Well, um, tackling it, say, for Italian-Americans, we have to do a lot of research in American records in order to find our Italian origins. So I would encourage people to attend lectures, to, to view webinars, to really get educated on the best ways to go about this research. And I've actually written a couple of blog posts about that, which they can find uh, links on the Origins Italy website. But you really want to exhaust every possible possible resource to find your immigrant origins, whether it be passenger lists. Sometimes you find clues in census records, obviously, for immigration, uh, naturalization records, any vital record that you can find, both for the immigrant, the spouse, and all of the children. Don't leave any stone unturned. And also, as Italian-Americans, um, many of our ancestors, aunts, uncles, whoever, they were members of the Sons of Italy. And a lot of those records are coming online. And these can be great clues and also contain information about your ancestral town, which is pretty exciting. Oh, fantastic. Now, Sons of Italy, um, is that like a um, an ethnic 
organization that they would have joined here in the U.S. Correct. To kind of be together in a community. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. So the one, the the local one here in Woburn, Massachusetts, um, both of my great grandparents, my grandparents, and a bunch of my aunts and great uncles, and basically everybody was a member of the Sons of Italy organization. And on their application forms, they actually put their actual ancestral town where they were from. So maybe oh. that wouldn't appear on a birth certificate, or maybe you can't find it on a passenger list because they came over in a period where they were not writing the ancestral town on the passenger list. This can mm-hmm. be kind of an alternative resource for finding these origins. Would those always be first-generation uh, immigrants, or would their descendants also join that organization? Both. I would definitely say both can join, could Fantastic. still, and did join yeah. that organization. Okay, wonderful. So, it, in in a sense, it sounds like the foundation of the work that you do is much like we would do with anything else, with Germany or uh, Ireland, where you're looking at the census records, we're working our way backward, we're, we're looking for naturalization, the passenger list, the census... Um, hopefully, between all of these, um, we're going to find that village name. Um, and before we jump the pond, would now obviously many Italians were Catholic, would the Catholic Church have records in the US that we might tap into? Yes, absolutely. And this is just encouraging all folks to conduct a reasonably exhaustive search. If you're able to obtain uh, parish register records like baptisms, marriages, and even death records, which are church records, um, there's a lot of information, for example, witnesses or godparents to a birth, a christening. Um, These people could have potentially been from the same ancestral town as your ancestors. So especially when you're having trouble perhaps locating your own ancestral town, uh, check Elizabeth Schoen Mills fan club. Who was around this particular immigrant? Who were the neighbors? Who were their friends? Who were the witnesses on baptisms? Just explore every option and no matter what, never, ever give up. Because I believe with enough determination, you can always find your answers. Exactly. And and people obviously congregated together. Correct. They didn't just like, you know, <laughs> everybody hits the wind and, and never looks back, but they tended to, you know, you, you work together with people that you can speak the same language and all that. Totally makes sense. Exactly. So hopefully we jump the pond and... Um, I did a little bit of quick, you know, looking into, I checked out the Family Search Wiki, which has a great Italian uh, research page. And it said that Italy is subdivided into 20 regions. Correct. But records are at the town level. Now, that's a little different for many of us um, who have maybe worked in other countries. Talk a little bit about that. What's unique about getting your hands on records in Italy? Well, there are many things unique about uh, international research, and specifically Italy. Um, I always say there are over 8,000 ways to do Italian genealogy. That's one for every (laughs) single town in Italy. Oh, boy. (laughs) So, um, you know, sometimes the records are only found in the town, and that's your only copy, especially, say, for example, if it hasn't been microfilmed by the LDS Church. That copy of the civil records could be the only copy. In some cases, there's a second copy that's also found at the state archives, Archivi di Stato. So what you want to check first is whether, we're just talking about civil records here, but are there civil records available in the town, and is there a second copy at the Archivo di Stato for the province that your ancestor was from. So there may be an alternative in many cases as to where to consult these records within an archive, which may or may not be more easily accessed or have 
open research hours and so forth. So you really have to zone in on the local history of that area to find out where are the records, what years are these records, are the records accessible, when could you potentially go there as a genealogist and research them. So there, you know, there were a lot of questions and no matter what town in Italy, it's a separate set of contacts usually. I mean, it's a different parish priest or priest, the different mayor or city official that will be in charge of these records. So we deal with a lot of people as uh, an Italian genealogical research firm, which is part of why I love it so much. It's just you have to deal with so many contacts to coordinate so many things to get a single project done on site in Italy. Yeah, and Mary, you're making such an important point, one that I've tried to drive home before on the show, which is that we're not just researching our ancestors, we are researching the locations and the record collections. If we don't understand the history of the record collections, then we could be putting a lot of effort into something that either doesn't exist or isn't available or is available somewhere else. So um, I love that point. And it really applies, doesn't it, across the board? Oh, it absolutely does. Because essentially, you have to know somewhat Italian history to determine whether a record collection exists in a certain time period or not. You know, there are a lot of people that, you know, ask quite innocently at the beginning of their getting started in Italian genealogy. Well, can I find, for example, civil records from the 1700s in Italy? Well, the answer is, of course, no, because the laws that created these records didn't come around until Napoleon came through in the early 1800s. So finding trying to find a civil record from the 1700s will be an unsuccessful search because it never existed. Exactly, exactly. Well, now, I, I couldn't let you go without talking to you about your own research. I know you have Italian roots. Um, what's been your experience? You said that you've traveled over there several times. I, um, we're going to have another guest on the show who's a, a longtime listener who went over and had an opportunity to visit the town, you know, talk to the mayor and, and get the records. Um, how has your experience been in going over and meeting the uh, the relatives, if you will? Well, believe it or not, I've actually been to Italy 13 times. So as you can guess, it's kind of a passion. And um, I just love, in addition to conducting on-site research for clients, I love to visit where my two paternal grandparents were from. And visiting each time in my grandfather's town, you just get a sense of belonging. And I almost feel like, you know, a piece was missing. And when I return to my grandfather's ancestral town, it's back because my surname fits in. The Mm -hmm. roots of my family's cuisine are still there. I can walk the streets where my grandfather used to play as a boy, see where he was baptized, see where he grew up, and the the houses around that. It's just an incredible moving experience and something that I would encourage all Italian-Americans, should they have the opportunity, to return to their ancestral towns. Because it's really these small towns, or large cities in some cases, that make each of us uniquely Italian-American. And no matter who you meet, they have a distinct combination of how they're Italian-American. Maybe they have an ancestor from Puglia and another one from Sicily, or maybe they have one from Calabria and another one from Tuscany. You'll find that talking to people, everybody's Italian-American mix, I guess you could call it, is unique. And that's part of what makes my job so exciting is every case is unique, and it's just so much fun. Oh, sounds fabulous. I mean, and that's just such a um, 
an amazing life experience to go back. And like you say, where you, you just feel you fit in, you, you know, you, you've been there or your family has been there. And um, the response, don't you find that often that the locals, you know, we hear stories about, oh, this country, that country doesn't like Americans, but you get to the local level. Um, have you, haven't you found that the responses have been very positive? Well, I mean, I'm so fortunate to work a great deal in a country where the Italian people are just so lovely. And yeah. in the majority, the vast majority of cases, I find a lovely reception when I come on site to a town or to an archive. And people are genuinely helpful just by their nature. And to mm-hmm. me, that's really a gift because as genealogists, sometimes we find uh, situations that are more challenging. And sometimes we find situations where it's just a pleasure to conduct research there. And I can say really for the vast majority of the cases, it's just really fun and intriguing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mentioned that I checked out the Family Search Wiki and their Italian page. Do you have any other couple of um, favorite websites if somebody's been listening to the show and they think, okay, I'll put an hour into it. Let me let me do a little bit of my own homework online and then try to move forward from there. Where do you would you suggest that they go? Well, I would suggest uh, you know Family Search is obviously a great place to start because hands down they have the most digitized Italian records and obviously the microfilm of Italian community from small communities to very large cities. So the first thing I would really check is whether your ancestral town has anything microfilmed from Family Search. Because I talk to a lot of people and I always encourage them, you know, don't go all the way to Italy to research records that we have in Salt Lake City or you can find online. Go to Italy to research records that we can't get here in America and we can't access here in America. It'll just really give you the best value. So definitely start with Family Search and um, once you've exhausted the records on microfilm and digitized, uh, it's likely that your research may have to move onto the ground in Italy. Exactly. Well, and certainly if you want assistance with that, um, originsitaly.com is a fabulous place to visit. And um, you can check out Mary's work and her team that does Italian research. And uh, we'll have links in the show notes for all of the um, items that we've talked about. And of course, Genealogy Roadshow, which premieres January of 2015 on PBS. Mary, I'm so glad to have had you on the show. I hope you'll come back again. Thank you so much, Lisa. It would be a sincere pleasure. I appreciate it. more exciting than receiving mail. I thought letters were best, but I was unexpectedly just as excited to begin receiving mail from Genealogy Gems listeners. This is Diane Southard, your DNA guide with a genetic gem to keep you up to date in the world of genetic genealogy. I recently received a letter that I would like to comment on. For those of you who listened in recently as we discussed the new DNA Circles feature at Ancestry, you'll remember that I was mostly optimistic about this new change and felt that it shows that Ancestry is trying to implement tools to help make genetic genealogy more successful. However, it is worth mentioning that Ancestry DNA is still lacking one essential feature. It is known in the industry as a chromosome browser. 
I am a huge proponent of the chromosome browser as an essential tool in genetic genealogy. I agree that it should be part of any genetic genealogy experience. A chromosome browser allows you to see the actual physical locations on the DNA where you share with others. Knowing this information can help you in your analysis of your relationship and help you make connections with others who may not have an obvious connection to your family tree. It essentially provides the answer to your question of what now? You know, when you log into the testing company, you see all these people that are your genetic cousins, but either they don't have a family tree or you can't immediately see a connection in your tree, so you aren't sure what to do next. Part of the answer is in the chromosome browser. The genetic genealogy community as a whole is up in arms about Ancestry's lack of a chromosome browser. I have been in meetings with Ancestry and they do have their reasons for not providing one, with privacy being paramount in their minds. The idea that we can have quick and relatively inexpensive access to our entire genome is a daunting thought. We can't possibly know what will lie ahead in the many industries implementing this amazing scientific advancement. Ancestry is just trying to be forward thinking. I too feel that this makes them seem like an overprotective parent that keeps their child in the house at all times behind two padlocked steel enforced doors just so they won't wander out into the street and get hurt. And it is very frustrating. But on some level, I do understand their perspective. They have a very long-term perspective. They are planning and thinking about where this technology will be, not just in five or 10 years, but 15 and 20 and even 50 years. At that time, we will surely have moved away from the SNP testing we are doing now to full genome sequencing. At that very high level of comparison, there will be many things that a chromosome browser could reveal about our health. I think with the implementation of DNA circles, Ancestry is trying to create tools in the areas where they're comfortable and actually capable. Yes, they are making mistakes, but so are the other testing companies. Yes, the trees at Ancestry DNA are often flawed. And remember, they did release the DNA circles as beta, which tells us they know they have work to do. I have read many concrete accounts of how this tool is making mistakes, but they're in uncharted territory here. No other company is trying to so fully integrate traditional genealogy with genetic genealogy, and there is something to be said for that. You will probably agree that one of the biggest frustrations with any testing company is getting people to post their family trees and respond to your inquiries about their family trees. By making inclusion in the circles contingent upon having and linking your sample to a family tree, even a flawed one, it does encourage more people to post public trees. Of course, it does completely ignore anyone without a family tree, again frustrating. But the letter I received did bring up an interesting point about the limitations of all the companies, and in upcoming episodes, I'll be exploring more about setting realistic expectations when it comes to DNA testing. In the meantime, keep the mail coming. You can always reach me through the Genealogy Gems or more directly at guide at yourdnaguide.com.
Profile America, Thursday, January 1st. The place where many of our ancestors first stepped ashore when they came to America seeking a new life opened on this date in 1892, Ellis Island in New York Harbor. The very first immigrant processed at the new facility was a 15-year-old Irish girl named Annie Moore. Over the course of more than 60 years, some 12 million people flowed through the center. Some sources say the number is considerably higher. The peak year was 1907 when just over a million immigrants came to Ellis Island. The complex now belongs to the National Park Service and is visited by several million people a year. In 1910, the foreign-born represented nearly 15% of America's population. Now, after falling through 1970, that figure sits at 12.9%. You can find more facts about America from the U.S. Census Bureau online at census.gov. Thank you so much for joining me for Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 175. And I want to thank Sonny Morton for picking another terrific book for the Genealogy Gems book club, Orphan Train. We'll look forward to hearing from the author here in an upcoming episode. And of course, thank you to Mary Tedesco for joining us here. And we're looking forward to Genealogy Roadshow on PBS. And uh, for those of you with Italian ancestors, I'm hoping that you got some tidbits there that are really going to help you out in your research. And I mentioned to you that I have an announcement for you, and uh, I think I just briefly touched on this in the last episode, but I'm happy to say that the second edition of the Genealogist Google Toolbox, my book, is on track. We are set to wrap everything up and get the books hopefully delivered um, by the end of January 2015 and start shipping. So I figured while I'm working diligently to tie up all the loose ends and get this book ready and out the door, I wanted to offer you a special pre-order available on the book. So if you head to genealogygems.com and click store, you'll see um, it's it's a whole new store. I hope you guys are enjoying it. I, I certainly love that it's so much easier to navigate. If you kind of scroll down the homepage, you'll see some of our featured items and the new second edition is a featured item. And as a pre-order, we're going to have it available. It's normally $24.95, which uh, the first edition was as well. But we're gonna, we have it on a special sale just for pre-order for $19.95 to get a print copy of the book. And, um, I, it's gonna be jam-packed. We have redone every inch of the book. Uh, almost all the images are new. And while we kept the, the basics and things that have stayed true in Google, we've gotten rid of those things that have gone by the wayside and certainly added a whole lot of new content. So I'm really excited about bringing some new how-to information to you in this book. It's uh, definitely it was time for an update, and I think that you'll you'll really enjoy it. And it's going to make you a better Googler, which means you're a better researcher, and you're going to hopefully have a little more time to do actual research because you're not wasting time on the various ways that we can get kind of sidetracked on Google. These tools are fantastic. Everything from, from Google Books to the Newspaper Archive to Google Search to YouTube. I'm going to even teach you a whole new section on if you want to set up your own Family History YouTube channel, uh, whether for yourself or for your genealogy society or if you're a, a budding entrepreneur in genealogy, whatever it is you want to do, video is the future. So I'm, I've got a whole new section on that. All of those tools can be absolutely an asset and they can also 
slow you down a little bit if you don't know the right way to uh, work with them. You read this book and follow the the step-by-step instructions. You'll be moving along at the speed of light and uh, achieving a lot more success, I hope. So check it out, all new, second edition of the Genealogist Google Toolbox. And that print book is on sale as a pre-order for $19.95. All right, well, thank you so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.